forum for frank talk about what people do for a living. Works do. Hello and welcome to Works Do. It's November 30th, 2014, and this is episode number 89. I'm Kate Gase Walton. I'm the editor of Works Do, an online collection of essays and interviews in which people ponder their work lives. In this episode, I speak with a professional dominatrix, Margaret Corvid. today to Margaret Corvid. And Margaret, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with a very basic question, which is when you're asked, what do you do for a living? How do you respond? Uh, well, I say that I am a professional dominatrix, uh, which I am. Um, I also might refer to myself as a sex worker. And um, Tell me, break it down for me. What do you actually do day by day? Um, well, basically what happens is um, I see clients who want to do kink, fetish, and BDSM activity. So if you've never really heard of it, think of stuff like Fifty Shades of Grey, although that isn't the most accurate portrayal. But, you know, I tie people up, give them spankings. We'll do various role plays with them, like, you know, treat them like a naughty schoolboy, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, it can be very, very diverse what I actually do with a client. Um, I don't provide sexual activity like, you know, intercourse, oral sex, the various things that people think of when they do sex. Um, but it is definitely an adult activity, a sensual activity. If that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So how, how did you get into this line of work? How would you describe your path? Um, well, I've been involved in lots of different jobs. I've been involved in corporate jobs, not-for-profit jobs. Um, and what happened was I moved to the southwest of the United Kingdom, and I did not have a lot of work available to me because uh, the economy is quite depressed here. So um, I've always had sort of an interest in kink and fetish, and I had the sort of aptitude and the experience to, uh, to do that work professionally. So I sort of went into about a year uh, consciously thinking, okay, this is something I'm going to do. And in that year, I did a lot of practicing. I spoke to a lot of other people in the same business. Uh, and uh, I developed sort of the character that I was going to use, talked to other people about screening safety, and sort of amassed uh, the equipment, uh, the kit that I need to do my job. Um, once, once that happened um, and I decided I was ready, uh, I decided to put my website up and list on various uh websites, advertising networks where you can uh, advertise your services here. And then I started getting clients and building up my client base. And so let's touch on that safety issue that you brought up. How do you protect yourself? Uh, well, you have to protect yourself both from dangerous clients and from criminalization, you know, the fact that sex work is legal in the United Kingdom, but you have to 
uh, comply with the laws. Like the safest way for people to do any kind of sex work would be in an organized kind of a brothel situation where you have lots of people working together, sharing their resources and so on. But that's illegal in the UK. You can only have one sex worker working independently at a time. Um, so one thing that I had to do was get my own place. I can't be in like a housemate situation because that's not really fair to them. And uh, in order to screen people, you know, first of all, I speak to them on the phone um, and basically make sure they don't sound like a loony. Uh, I'll ask people to make a small deposit, which you can do in a different couple of ways, and that sort of screens out people who want to waste my time. Then on the day of the session, you know, it's happening in my house, and my husband lives here as well, so he's never around for the session, but he's always waiting in the bedroom. Um, so in case there was any kind of emergency, he could come out within seconds and help me. Uh, and that's okay because, you know, he's my husband. He has his own job. He's not involved in my work at all. But I would not have a session in the house without him being there, you know, in the next room. Uh, and if it's a new client, they don't necessarily know that, that's what I'm doing. They're just coming in. So if they're going to try to be violent or anything else, I'm going to have that element of surprise. And I've never had to actually use that. All of my clients have really been wonderful. Um, another thing is it's good to have somebody else in the house basically as a spotter. For instance, if I've got somebody tied up, they might you know, get sick all of a sudden, pass out, you know, because of some unrelated health concern. And then I need to, to get them out of that very quickly and make sure they're safe. And having a second person in the house uh, is also good from that aspect of the client's safety in case something happens. Right. So the, um, the UK's rule about not having a brothel type of environment and having people who are self-employed, self-directed, is that, I'm, I'm assuming that's to sort of prevent exploitation, right? Is that the rationale? Uh, the rationale is indeed to prevent exploitation, but I don't think that they're actually being honest about that. I think they just have a moral problem with sex work. Um, because if you look at the research uh, from all over the world, the countries in which sex workers are safest is where their work is decriminalized completely. So if you look at New Zealand, um, it's been decriminalized there for some time. And there's basically been zero trafficking cases there. Um, it's really a difficult situation because you have this whole industry of people that want to end sex work and say they sort of conflate coerced sex work or sex trafficking with sort of voluntary consensual sex work, which is what I do. Mm. So in your view, this this law is really just kind of an effort to have it be, you know, sight unseen more than really dealing with the exploitation issue. Yeah, it doesn't really help people who are exploited because people who have been trafficked, who have been coerced, who want to get out of their situation, maybe they've got a pimp exploiting them, maybe they've got a drug addiction, whatever. Mm -hmm. 
or if they're criminalized, if they're likely to, to catch a charge uh, or, you know, be treated very badly by the police, they're not likely to go to the police and say, I was raped by a client, I was robbed, uh, there's a pimp controlling me, I want to get out of the sex industry. Um, you know, if you look at what's going on in Soho, with the, that's a bit of London, uh, there's repeated raids against sex workers there, and a lot of them are from Eastern Europe, and the raids are basically like an immigration raid in everything but name, but they're doing that, and they're claiming they're trying to help trafficked women, and it's just BS. Mm. Hmm. So let me ask you this. You mentioned that when you first got into the work, uh, it was at least in part because there weren't um, other jobs available to you in in that part of the UK. How do you look at it now that you've done it for a while? Is it something where there's any element of economic duress or is it something that at this point is just a really good fit for you, a good job for you? Uh, it is a really good job for me. It gives me a lot of time to do other things like writing. Uh, I have a bunch of journalism stuff that I do in opinion writing. And if I had to travel on two buses and work 40, 50 hours a week or be at the mercy of like a zero hours contract, then I wouldn't have the time or the peace of mind to do that stuff. So, um, you know, sex work, it doesn't give me a massive living, um, but it allows me to make, you know, a decent living, contribute to household expenses, save, subsidizes the time that I use for writing and also for, you know, the campaigning work that I do for the rights of sex workers. It, it's really been a transformative job for me. Um, also, working for myself in general has been revolutionary for me. Um, if you sort of talk to people in the new precarious economy, there's a lot of us that have two or three freelance jobs that we put together. And for me, sex work is one of those jobs. I don't have to deal with office politics. I don't have to deal with a boss I don't like, a commute, anything like that. Finally, let me ask you one question that I ask almost everybody that I speak to, which is what do you see as um, the one thing that outsiders, those who have not um, worked as a sex worker, uh, don't understand about your life and, and the living that you make? What's the, what's the most misunderstood element of what you do? Uh, I think the misunderstood element is that people think sex work is gross or sleazy or anything like that. And it's really not. Um, if you look at sex, sexuality, kink, things like that as just a part of basic human expression, then you've got people coming in here having a great time. And, and then when, when we're done, they say, thank you. You know, you've made my day, you've made my week, you've relieved my stress. Um, the work that I do is something I would consider one of the helping professions. Uh, human contact and touch is, is necessary for everyone. And, and that includes sexuality and, and sexy touch. So I think people need to set their moralist assumptions about sex work aside. Well, thank you very much, Margaret. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thank you.
That wraps up the interview for today. Thanks again very much to my guest, Margaret Corvid. Thanks also to everyone who's contributed an essay to Work Stew. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening today. The next episode will be released in two weeks, and I hope you'll check it out. In the meantime, please let me know what you thought of the interview by sending an email to kate at workstew.com, by posting a comment on the Workstew website, or by writing a review for iTunes. Thanks again, and bye for now.